Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Lisa Highland, Associate Director for Public Programming here in the Energy Program. Recently, my colleague and director of the Energy Program, Sarah Ladislaw, sat down with Spencer Dale, Group Chief Economist for BP. Spencer was at CSIS to present this year's BP Energy Outlook. The Outlook explores factors which are shaping the global energy transition out to the year 2040. In this discussion, we also asked Spencer to focus on the role that trade plays in the energy sector. Let's turn it over to Sarah and Spencer. Thanks for being here, Spencer. Thank you. So, Spencer, you just presented the 2019 BP Energy Outlook here at CSIS to a packed audience. For those of our listeners who don't uh, typically follow the BP Energy Outlook, it is a scenario planning exercise where you guys look at a range of different futures and try to help BP planners and, quite frankly, the broader energy stakeholder community understand the way in which the future might change. And then you test some of those scenarios against a, a range of futures. Um, but but to be very clear, you're not trying to predict the future, right? Absolutely. The value of a product like BP's Energy Outlook is not to predict the future. Any forecast will be wrong. Mm-hmm. It's rather to better understand the, the nature of the uncertainty you face. Mm-hmm. So what happens if electric cars grow really rapidly? What would happen if China's economy slowed very dramatically? What happens if we saw a very significant increase in regulation of single-use plastics? Mm-hmm. Do a whole series of what-if statements, and then you can start to explore the range of uncertainty you face mm-hmm. as a company. And as a company like BP, our strategy shouldn't be to say, well, what do we think is most likely? That would be a crazy thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's rather to develop a strategy in a portfolio of assets which is resilient and robust across a whole range of outcomes. Mm-hmm. So understand the uncertainty and then pick a strategy which works quite well across that range of, of different possible outcomes. And an important thing is you do this annually, right? And you look at a whole bunch of things like the effect on different sectors of the economy of these, of these scenarios, regions of the world supply and demand for fuels and carbon emissions. We can't like possibly go through all of that. I would recommend people either watch the webcast or go to the BP website to take a look at some of the details that you provide on the breakdown of each of those. But one of the more useful things I think you do is within each of those areas, you guys try and investigate sort of key questions. Could you go over just like very quickly, what were the key questions that you investigated in this year's forecast? And then I want to dive deeper into one of them that I find particularly interesting. Yeah, three or four issues. So in some sense, if you do something like this every year, the broad contours don't change. What's interesting is which bits of those contours you want to hold up a microscope to, a magnifying glass, and sort of peer in a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Three or four questions we, we, we thought about this year. One is um, looking at the relationship between human development uh, in, in some of the poorest parts of the world and the, the relationship that has with energy consumption mm-hmm. and just... I highlighting that the world, as well as needing a significant reduction in carbon emissions, will also need more energy. Mm -hmm. That was one significant issue. A second point was the recognition that a significant part of the growth in oil demand over the next 20 years is likely to come from oil being used as a feedstock in the petrochemical sector, particularly for the production of plastics. Mm -hmm. Environmental concerns associated with single-use plastics are increasing. What sort of risks could that pose to the outlook for oil demand Mm -hmm. was a second issue. A third one was the... um, in terms of uh, the need to have a rapid transition to a lower carbon energy system. 
essential message from the outlook was we're not on a path consistent with achieving Paris at the moment. We need a significant change in policy and what types of policies may get us off of our current path onto a path more consistent with achieving those Paris climate goals. And a fourth one was exploring some of the, the potential implications if the recent trade disputes we've seen sort of persist and escalate going further. What implications could they have for the global energy system? So all of those are really, really interesting and very topical and things that we you know talk about with a lot of folks all, all the time because they are so important to sort of understanding the intersection of, uh, of policy and technology and our energy future. The one that is top of mind, uh, quite frankly, here in Washington these days is trade, uh, both because of the kind of uh, tariff uh, exercises that we're seeing, uh, the the trade disputes that we're seeing. But quite frankly, over the longer run, this concern that globalization maybe hasn't delivered all of the benefits uh, as equally as one might like to see. And so what do we do about that? I'm really curious about how you tackled that question within the context of the scenario. So maybe to start with, how do you usually deal with the issue of trade in one of these scenarios? So normally, you you so normally it's a sort of it's a techno economic framework. So you, if there are benefits and gains from trade, you assume that trade um, takes place and there is not impediments to it. And so that's what the sort of default is. Mm-hmm. What we wanted to explore this year was trying to think about the implications if these trade disputes were to escalate. Now the key point here. We weren't trying to model the impact of any particular trade dispute. It was trying to think about the more generic issue of how these trade disputes uh, could um, could impact the system. And we did that by including or thinking about two possible effects from these trade disputes. Mm-hmm. One is a fairly standard impact that you see within the economics literature, mm-hmm. which is if you see uh, a reduction in the degree of openness and trade in the global economy, that means technological advances and gains in productivity in one, parts of, one part of the world tends to be transferred less quickly to other parts of the world. And so therefore, over a period of time, trend economic growth tends to slow. Um, not very much, one or two tenths each year, mm-hmm. but you do one or two tenths slower growth each year over 20 years, it mounts up. Mm-hmm. And slower economic growth then leads to slower energy demand. Mm-hmm. So that's effect number one. Mm-hmm. The second effect was to say, if these trade disputes in- increase, countries which import energy today may become more concerned about their risks of energy security. Mm-hmm. So, And we say, let's suppose they impose a 10% risk premium on that. Now, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. The way to think about it, what that means is, suppose I'm a country which is importing oil mm-hmm. today, and the oil price is, say, $60. This 10% risk premium says, I would be willing to produce domestic oil or an equivalent up to $66. Mm-hmm. And I would prefer that because of the extra security that provides. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no great science underpinning 10%. There's a little bit of science, and you can pick a different number. I, I thought 10% was a relatively small uh, number. What was striking is those two assumptions, which are both pretty small, led to quite profound impacts in terms of the global energy system. Mm-hmm. What was the top line impact of those two changes that you made in so, your assumptions? First of all, uh, weaker economic growth. So the level of GDP, global GDP in 2040, was about 6% lower than it was um, in, in a case where that wasn't the case. And, and as a result, global energy demand was about 4% lower. 
At one level, you think 4%, oh, (laughs) that doesn't sound like a big deal. 4% of global energy in 2040 is roughly equivalent to the entire energy consumed by India today. Mm -hmm. So you're taking India off the map in terms of energy demand. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. for energy production, it is quite a big deal. Mm -hmm. The second, and I think even more pronounced point, was this risk premium, this concern about energy security led countries to have a preference for domestic energy Mm -hmm. rather than imported energy. Mm -hmm. And so if I look at some of the biggest energy importers in the world, China, India, they moved away from importing oil and gas and instead relied more on the energy they could produce at home. Renewable energy was part of that, but coal is also part of that because both China and India have significant quantities of coal. So what you saw is both weaker growth, a weaker energy demand, but that that weakness in energy demand particularly concentrated um, in in oil and gas. Mm -hmm. And and you also looked at what that means for energy exporters as well. Can you talk a little bit about those findings? Yeah, because a natural corollary of this, (laughs) if if the countries which are importing oil and gas are importing less oil and gas, the biggest losers in this scenario were the world's largest oil and gas exporters. That's Russia is one of the world's, is the the world's largest oil and gas exporter. Mm -hmm. The second one which is emerging as a very significant oil and gas exporter is here in in the US. And in this scenario um, where we have these, these trade disputes escalating, the growth, the level of US oil and gas exports in 2040 are around two thirds lower relative to scenario where it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So that, that growth and, and, and sort of emergence of the US as being a sort of major oil and gas, gas exporter is significantly dampened in this scenario because of this energy security issue. Mm-hmm. This may sound a bit abstract, some of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess two reasons why I don't think it's abstract. One is the reason why this was motivated, what motivated this scenario, wasn't us sitting in London saying, oh, what would be an interesting question. It was me having lots of discussions in Asia and seeing people saying, I'm a bit more nervous about gas at the moment. And I said, well, why are you nervous about gas? And, it's, and they said, because of energy security. Mm-hmm. And I said, but the world's awash with energy, uh, with, with gas, why worry? And, and, and it was because of these sort of trade-related issues. So that's one reason why it's not too abstract. Mm-hmm. The second point, one of the sort of uh, a feature in history is the year in which oil played its biggest, most important role in the global energy system. The, the year in which the share of oil peaked was 1973, mm-hmm. the year of the oil embargo. That year of that oil, that oil embargo made countries in the West say, I'm nervous about the security of my oil supplies. I'm going to try and diversify into other things. That One example is the growth of nuclear energy that happened post then. The share of oil in the global energy system has declined pretty much every year since. Mm-hmm. So oil has never been important. The lesson from history is energy security uh, uh, concerns can have persistent scarring effects. And so that's why it's not just an abstract question. Mm. One of the things I, I also think is important, as you just said, maybe just putting it in, in simple terms, most outlooks see a really big opportunity for gas, particularly the growth of global gas markets, the interconnection of regional gas markets. And that could be a foregone opportunity in this scenario to a a degree. Yes. And actually, the impacts on gas 
are, are, are even more pronounced than for oil mm-hmm. for the sort of, sort of fairly of intuitive reason. If you're a country in Asia, your ability to swap away from gas using renewables and coal in the power sector is relatively easy. Mm-hmm. Your ability to swap away from oil, particularly its role in transport, is harder. So it's gas that gets particularly affected. And one sort of striking thing in terms of our outlook, I talked about that scenario of that rapid transition to um, a lower carbon energy system with massive growth in renewables. The, the profile for natural gas in that scenario is higher Mm. than the profile for natural gas in the trade dispute scenario. So the risk to natural gas from the trade disputes in our scenario was greater than the risk from a rapid transition. And one can imagine also that, I mean, that the impact on emissions in a, a less you know, uh, globalized world would also be worse. As you said at the outset, you use more coal domestically, potentially, you know, to meet your needs. But the, the other thing is you're not trading a lot in goods and services, and, and particularly you can't drive down the cost of technologies that can help in, in meeting lower carbon needs as well on the renewable side. Yeah, the, the impact on carbon was quite complex. So there's two or three things going on. One is overall GDP is lower and overall energy demand is lower. Yeah. So now in some sense, less energy is being used. That's in some sense for a bad reason, because the world is less wealthy and less prosperous, but that does help carbon emissions. In terms of the fuel mix, I sort of think of it as a bit like a salad and ice cream diet. So the salad bit is you consumed more um, renewables. Um, the ice cream, you also consumed more coal. And in some countries, the salad dominated the ice cream and in, and some and in others, the vice versa. Totally discovered my diet and I'm ruled by the ice cream. <laughs> um, one other thing I wanted to say is, I, you know, what I find particularly striking about this scenario is that it, it, it really does pick up the cautions that we've been hearing increasingly from the IMF, right, which is there are headwinds to uh, uh, global GDP growth in the sort of post-economic crisis, you know, recovery period. And part of that has to do with um, protectionist policies, looking at trade and sort of the um, uh, uh, in, in a sort of more skeptical uh, uh, light, um, but also that we're not making the kinds of reforms that are necessary to be able to really drive GDP growth. What do you what do you think is necessary in the energy conversation to try and um, make the point that you know trade is actually a really big part of uh, what makes the energy system work and work well? So. The nature of trade, it allows countries to diversify away from the fuels they they, they, they can produce dom- domestically. I think sort of the, the, impa- the biggest imperative for that is when you're thinking about where's all of the growth in energy going to come from over the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. All of the growth in, in every scenario we look at comes from the developing world. Mm-hmm. Rich, developed countries like the US, Europe, they have enough energy and um, and their, economic, their economies will continue to grow, but that should be largely offset by energy efficiency. And so energy demand in the OECD economy is largely flat. All the growth is coming from the developing world, particularly in Asia, mm-hmm. China, India, other parts of uh, emerging Southeast Asia. They are very rich in coal. Mm-hmm. And if we want them to diversify away from coal for good reasons in terms of climate, then we have to provide them access to other types of of energies. Now, domestically produced renewable energy is part of that, Mm -hmm. but it only could be part of that. And so if we want to see a gradual transition away from coal into cleaner, lower carbon fuels, then we have to provide them secure, ready access to those other types of fuels. Well, and I I certainly think one of the lessons that's particularly important in the U.S. context here is that 
we've often thought of energy security as being energy independence, but unfortunately, you know, the reality that most people have not picked up on is the fact that the the way in which we trade in energy resources actually makes much more secure, much more diversified. Um, And that's a lesson that I think we would want many developing economies to also learn, but we will shake the confidence in it if we don't make sure that they can have confidence in that trading system. Absolutely. And In my previous life, I used to be a central banker, and I was a central banker during the financial crisis. And one of the mess, one reason why the financial crisis had such big, profound effects was the interconnectedness of of, of supply chains. Mm-hmm. So the world is very interconnected. So shocks in one part of the world lead to very big, profound effects around the whole world. Those interconnected supply chains have many benefits, but they do lead to a degree of interconnectedness. And so, if we see a sort of friction into the into the way the, those interconnected supply chains work or the, the interconnection of, of energy in this sense, it can have big implications. And that's why most economists disagree on most questions. I think <laughs> one question where almost all economists was, would agree on is trade is good for economic growth and, and global prosperity. And so anything which threatens um, that, that trade risks that. Now, very important issues about where the benefits of that trade um, end up being uh, enjoyed and how they're just making sure they're distributed fairly across countries and across societies. And that's very profound. But in some sense, it's best better to do that than to actually actually risk the, the underlying benefits of greater trade. I think that's a wonderful point to leave it on. I encourage all of our listeners to take a look at the uh, the broader outlook to see sort of this scenario in the context of the other scenarios. And just want to thank you very much for taking time to talk to us about it. Thank you. Thanks. Check on our website for links to Spencer's presentation at CSIS and to the BP Outlook. And as always, thanks for listening to Energy 360.